On Pop Fiction Women, we explore what it means to be a complicated woman. Tired of endless variations of leading men next to one-dimensional archetypes of women or strong female leads written by men that were essentially guys in women's bodies. We started this show to highlight the many female characters in entertainment worth exploring, as well as the women who dreamt them up. And now we're adding those creators to our conversations, discussing their process and passion in bringing these women to life. Welcome to Complicated Conversations. On these episodes, there's no spoilers. So come on, it's starting. So today we are talking with Miranda Beverly Whittemore, the New York Times bestselling author of Bittersweet, June, Set Me Free, and The Effects of Light. Her new novel, Fierce Little Thing, is out now. Uh, as a recipient of the Crazy Horse Prize in Fiction, she lives and writes in Brooklyn. Welcome to Pop Fiction Women, Miranda. We're so excited to have you today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. This referral came from Joanna Rakoff. The beloved Joanna. Slowly becoming a producer <laughs> on our show who's recommending books, recommending people we want to talk to and things we want to cover. I mean, she is fantastic. Oh, she's the best. Super fan extraordinaire. Yes. We've really gotten yeah. each other through this crazy time, I would say, oh. Joanna and I have. It's been, oh, that's good. It's been so a challenging great. time to be home with children and trying to have a career. So she's been one of my lifelines. Oh, we love that. Yeah. Well, I think your book was one of her lifelines because she Raved. was raving about Fierce Little Things. So we'd love to have you start by just telling our listeners a little bit about your new novel. So Fierce Little Thing is about a group of kids. The main character, Saskia, is the narrator, about a group of kids who, five kids, who end up living at a commune that kind of becomes a cult as they grow up there in rural Maine. It's a back to the land commune with this idea of unthinging, which is the idea of divesting yourself of all your worldly possessions in the interest of saving the earth and also coming back to an essential self. And while they're there, as the book goes on, they decide to do something pretty horrible to try to save the place where they live, the home that they love. It's called home. And the book takes place back and forth in time at that point. And then 20 some odd years later, when they're middle-aged and scattered to the wind and have their lives all kind of figured out and someone starts to blackmail them and basically sends them letters and says, I know what you did. And unless you come back to the land, which is now an overgrown pile of houses, unless you come back to the land, I'm going to tell everybody what you did. So they all have to kind of come back from all their different parts of life. One of them lives in New York and has a very successful life. One of them is itinerant and has a child. One of them is a very buttoned up woman who lives in Ohio and has 2.5 kids and the dog and the house. And um, one of them lives in Maine, right near where that happened. And then our main character, Saskia, has actually been shut in her house for 16 years. And she has to break out of her home basically with them and go up to this place in Maine and they discover what is there. So the kind of the two driving questions of the book is what did they do? And then what will they do? Those are the questions. This book has so many elements of stories that I love. It has secrets. It has a return to something. I love dual timelines as well. And of course, it has a very complicated protagonist in Saskia. She's hiding a lot. She has a lot going on. We wanted to talk a little bit more about her and how you developed her, how you found her voice, how she became the, the driver of this story for you. Well, I have a huge amount 
to thank my co-writer, um, not co-writer, but a writing partner of mine who I've worked on other projects with, whose name is Emily Rabiteau. You may know her work and she's really amazing. And she and I met, we first met on our first events that we both did for our first novels in 2005. We met at an event in Vermont and she and I have shared work ever since then. And in recent years have for, went through a period of time pre-COVID where we would meet every two weeks and talk about each other's work. And she was the one, I had a, this kind of rumbling around manuscript that at that point was called Things Too Fierce to Mention, which is a line in one of the songs that you keep returning to in the book. The homesteaders sing a lot of old songs to help them get their work done. And at that point, the story was told from all five of their points of view, Cornelia, Ben, Issy, Xavier, and Saskia. And I wrote this one scene in which that doesn't exist in the book anymore, in which they basically get caught in a storm up on a mountain the five of them. And it becomes this kind of testing ground where they figure out who they all are. And I wrote this specific line about Saskia. I was thinking about this the other day. And when I met with her the next day, she said, this is Saskia's story. You need to write it from Saskia's point of view. And I think I probably would have gotten there, but I would have probably been like two more years. <laughs> right. So I wow. have her to thank for that. <laughs> she was like, she's the one who needs to tell the story because she's the one with the secrets. So I always find there's this wonderful moment that happens in a book where you figure out the trick or the key to writing it more easily. <laughs> for me, sometimes mm. that's the kind of the oh, structure, wow. the structure at the center of the book, the question, as I said, what did they do and what will they do? Sometimes that can be the structure. And basically what's nice about that is it almost feels like cheating a little bit because you can throw out anything that doesn't answer that question in a scene or in the various scenes you write. You can throw out scenes that don't work towards giving you that answer. But in this case also, Saskia as this driving force became this wonderful trick because I felt like I could suddenly figure out what things she would see and know about that became part of that story. And as you mentioned, it's very complicated. There's two storylines. There's multiple characters who you know in both storylines, many of them. So they've aged, which I love. I think that's a super fun. I love to read that. I love to read a mm -hmm. character who you feel like you know as a child and then you know them as an adult and you recognize them or you don't recognize them, which is in some ways just as illuminating. But she really became this question. Part of what's interesting about her, I, I liked writing about her is when, when I first started Started writing her and she was in this house, I assumed that she was agoraphobic, as we would kind of guess in that woman in the window way. Yes, um, yeah. right, right. But in fact, that's not why she's inside. And when I discovered why she's really inside, that fierceness inside of her became this wonderful little fire that I felt like kept the whole thing burning. Mm -hmm. especially as she got out that. into the world. Yeah, I love how you just talk about writing. It just sounds so you're making it clear that it doesn't come to you in a flash. No, I think there are these moments that feel like little epiphanies where you discover, oh, I can do this thing that I want to do and this is how I can do it. But for me, those epiphanies are often few and far between. And in the case yeah. of writing this book, I mean, as I heard in your bio, I live in Brooklyn in my bio and I am basically this pandemic displaced my family from Brooklyn and we are now in Vermont. And over the course of the year, we were in Long Beach, Island for three months, then we were in Maine for a month, then we were in, now we've been in Vermont on and off. And in that period of time, I had to write the rest of this book. I had to write about 250 oh. pages of this book without my desk, without my room, without childcare. Right. I have two kids. Right. And in the case of this period of time, I was also living basically communally with other families. So there have been added children and adults in the mix. 
which has been amazing and writing a book about a commune. Yes. I was just going to say, you, you created home. There, there, You were all homesteaders. Right. And we were, filled, I mean, the homesteaders have this terror of what's happening in the world. And like, let's be honest, yeah. that was totally easy to tap True. into. You weren't washing your clothes with the goat's milk soap. I was though, not washing least. my clothes okay. with goat's milk soap, but I did start a garden. Thank God. So, you know, yeah. like, who knows what will happen. <laughs> By the way, I have had a very eerily similar pandemic. I did not get a book out of it, but I have had that. Right now, I'm actually at my brother's house with his four kids, my two kids, mm-hmm. and four adults. So 10 of us living in a house. It's yeah. communal living all the way. Yeah. And yeah. it's, I mean, you see why people do it. I mean, I think the thing that came for me, I'd love to hear about your experience, but like the reason that we initially went to Long Beach Island with our friend is that she's a single mom with a four-year-old and she had to work full time. And she was basically like, my life is untenable. I cannot be home with my kid full time who's four and do my job. And I have to do my job in order to feed my kid, but I can't do my job if I have my kid. You know, like, and so we, and she said, I have this beach house and it's empty. Do you guys want to just go there together and we'll rotate. So in that case, we had three adults and three kids. So we kind of rotated adult care. And at that point, I was really feverishly working on the book. By the time we got up to Vermont, and I basically started living with my sister and her husband and their kids, I was more on a revision. But that's also a whole bunch of work. It's just been a crazy time. (laughs) It has. Very crazy. But many of the questions that come up in the home, which is like how you feed everyone, that question of how you feed nine people or 10 people, let alone 30 people, is such a central daily question in the book. And something I really wanted to talk Mm -hmm. about in terms of women and the job of women to kind of be in charge of that. And the character of Sarah in this book, who is the woman in charge of the kitchen and what happens when she decides to absent herself from that was something I thought a ton about. I'm sure you did too. Just like making a meal for 10 people a year and a half ago would have intimidated me. And now I do it like every day, you know, this, it would have been, tim- I know this, it would have yeah. intimidated me. And it also would have like, I would have thought I need to plan this. This is my personality. Yeah. I would have planned this out and like, think about what's the best way to do it. And here it's every day people need to eat. So it's like, yeah. you can't, I can't plan the whole thing out. You just throw stuff together and figure it out as you go. What worked, what didn't work. And then you repeat that. Yeah. It's been <laughs> crazy. So I want to talk about the commune home. You mentioned this concept of unthinging. Yeah. And I wanted to read a a part. Issy, a girl that becomes Saskia's friend, explains to her, none of it matters. Think about it. You're born without a single thing but your own body. But the world you grew up in, what we call the thinged world, taught you to believe you need things because the system that operates it capitalism can only sustain itself as long as you buy more get more we're all going to die though none of us taking a thing with us and in response saskia thinks it was a relief to hear someone say what i'd understood since the very moment you left and i love that line i mean clearly at this point like by the time saskia comes to home you know she's experienced some real trauma well beyond her years and she fully appreciates this idea that nothing else matters because when you lose someone that's close to you, none of this matters. The rest of the world just really does fall away. Yeah. And for me, well, of course, I was very interested in you know the mystery of who's blackmailing who and what their reckoning will be. I was personally really taken in with Saskia's grief and how that's shaped her entire life. And I'm interested in hearing you know from you about this aspect of Saskia's story for you. 
Oh, that's so powerful. Thank you for saying that, Kate. I really, that means the world to me because it is something that's kind of the carapace of this story was her grief Mm -hmm. and the trauma around that grief. And I think Mm -hmm. in many ways, the story is the journey of her grief, of her being released from it finally and released from her guilt about that grief, which is in her case very complicated. (laughs) So I'm always fascinated. I mean, I think there's this cultural fascination right now with cults and communes and that idea. And I definitely grew up living communally for a time in a West African village in Senegal. My parents were doing field work. So I lived in a community there for three years. And then when I came back to the States, my parents are both, I would guess what we would call hippies. So I had a lot of opportunities to kind of communally live and was very close to people who communally lived and happened my whole life. My husband grew up on a radical lesbian commune in New York City that was part of the Weather Underground, right? So I feel like I'm kind of, although I never grew up directly on a commune, I I have a lot of thoughts about that. And one of the things that really interested me is that moment of when does a commune become something that's dangerous? Like when does a group of people who are doing what we're doing, Corinne, which is like helping each other, when do you suddenly go from it being this wonderful, healthy, amazing thing that actually I think is pretty pro-feminist because you're not just a lady by yourself in your house doing laundry for everyone. Everyone, become this other question of danger. And in this case, there's this charismatic leader who, of course, is a white man who they all think is like groovy and cool and then turns out to be not so groovy and not so cool. And I thought one of the ways to do that would be to deliver us to that place through the eyes of someone who is ready, who can bite, eat it whole hog, right? Who is like, I'm ready for this. I'm in. And to kind of use that narrator, net narration as a delivery system for the reader so we don't have to go through a doubting phase. <laughs> so I don't have to convince the reader that this is the right thing. It's the right thing for Saskia. And I do think that she's at a place in that moment, she's only 12, but she's in a place where she's just ready for somebody to give her something that isn't what she's been, what she's been given up until that point, which is a very difficult childhood, but also in a capitalist way, a very privileged childhood. She's always had food. She's always had a roof over her head. She's always had the very best of everything. She's has access to her grandmother's fancy estate, right? So for her to come to that place and have someone, another child explain that to her. And Izzy has lived in that place longer than anyone else has. So for her, it's just like, you know, this is it. And in fact, in their adulthood, when they reconnect, Issy, although she has rejected many of the trappings of that life, is still at heart a homesteader because she's living, she's traveling all over the world. She has a backpack. She has her baby. She's facing the reality that maybe that's not going to work for much longer with the little kid, but she's she's really unthinged, truly. And in fact, in the book, Saskia remarks on that when she sees her again and admires that about her and feels guilty to be living in this giant mansion with everything she wants. And I thought about that a lot in terms of, because politically, I do believe what Issy says in that moment, and yet I am not living that way, <laughs> you know? Right. And mm-hmm. many of us aren't. So what does that mean? Right. Where's the disconnect? You know, they say, write what you know, you're writing what you know, but then also amping it up for fiction, which is, I think, the makes the best fiction, makes the best stories. So a lot of the authors that we talked to have discussed common themes or threads throughout their work and how sometimes they've known or they knew at some point, And then sometimes they have it revealed when someone is talking to them that, oh, yeah, that's what all my books are about. You've said that friendship is a central aspect of your work and that this 
novel draws so much on the strength of your friendships with a group of people that you've known since you were 10, although no crime is, has been involved <laughs> as far as we know. <laughs> so tell us about your personal inspiration and why you wanted to explore friendship in this novel. Oh, yeah. This book is dedicated to a group of friends who I met out in Oregon. We moved from Vermont to Oregon when I was... So we lived in Senegal until I was six, and then we moved back to the States, and my parents had their second child. And then when I was like nine, we moved out to Oregon. And basically, I spent my formative years from nine to 18 living in Portland, which at that point had a lot of counterculture in it. It was still a very, it wasn't, it wasn't like Nike Portland yet. It was, you know, a very kind of back to the landy. So my parents found this awesome summer camp that I went to that was in a little town called Tualatin, which is now essentially part of Portland because of, you know, development. And at that place, we did Shakespeare all summer was basically Shakespeare picking blackberries and raspberries and singing a lot of folk songs. A lot of the folk songs that are in this book are actually from learning from that time that I learned. And I thank our music teacher, Steve Kosky, who taught me all those songs with his guitar, just like standing on a stage in front of all of us. And that place was so formative for me. I learned so much about myself with this other group of kids who welcomed me in. I still think of myself as coming in late because some of those kids had been there when since they were like four or five, when it was really just a handful of kids. And really just like a kind of a communal childcare space that all of these parents had kind of formed together. We did have a charismatic leader, Althea Pratt-Broom, who's this woman who is a force of nature. And she had this vision of our education, which is that if you don't tell kids they can't do something, they don't know that they can't. So she would give us slightly cut down Shakespeare plays, but not radically cut down. And we would perform them. We would memorize them and rehearse them and perform them in a week. And we would do this all summer long. And it was magnificent. And we were so empowered by it. And the friendships formed in that time. I still dream about those people probably once or twice a month. I mean, they're still so important to me. And I love them so much. And I haven't spoken. I mean, we email occasionally and we're kind of on social media. I haven't seen those people in probably like five years. But when I was thinking about these characters and that those friendships you form at that time of your life, they're like the beginning, they're love affairs, right? They're just these pure, before it gets complicated, right? It's just yeah. before sex comes in or jealousy, it's just this pure love of other people, boys and girls in my case. And then we all went on to kind of be each other's first boyfriends and girlfriends to some degree, and that got complicated. But in that younger period of time, it was so beautiful. And I wanted to really write about that loyalty, that deep connection you have when you find your people at that young age. And I have a 12 year old now. And one of the things that's been really hard about this pandemic is just watching that not be an option. And I'm so thrilled that he's vaccinated (laughs) and is going to get to have that. Yeah. Finding your people. I love that. So we talk a lot on this podcast about being seen, we say with a capital S. Um, and, And often, honestly, it's in the context of romantic relationships, but we've discussed it in the context of platonic female friendships as well. And I felt like Fierce Little Thing, you gave us like an additional way to explore this. We always love another variation on being seen. And it was um, Saskia and Abraham. She really does feel seen by him. He is, as you said, the charismatic leader of home. And you wrote on page 31, she says, he was watching me 
looking into me. I had never understood that phrase until now. There was nothing to explain the fact that since spotting him, my eyes had been hungry. I love that line. And then later, you know, there's a point where his gaze, she says, steadies her. And he clearly sees her grief and her pain right from the beginning and really names it. And it's affirming for her. It allows her to realize that it's okay to feel the things that she's feeling, which to that point, I don't think anyone had really seen the pain and and the grief inside her the way he does. So I would love to just hear your thoughts more on on this idea of being seen. And in the end, you know, to me, it's just really about being accepted by someone else for who you are, the dark and the light. But then there's also with this approach with Abraham, there then can be issues that come from that, you know, Um, obviously then following what they may want you to do or, you know, so I just, I would love to hear more about that. Yeah. So when I wrote about this white man in power in this place, I did not want him to sexually abuse anyone. That was really important to me because I I don't need to write about that. That is its own space. And I felt like we've seen enough of little girls being hurt in that way. (laughs) So I wanted his power over her to be about his mind, about the way he saw her mind. And in fact, there are a couple moments in the book when he approaches her and she thinks he is going to kiss her. And she's like, oh God, okay, here we go. And then he doesn't. And in the spaces in which I grew up that were communal, there was a lot of blurred lines between the adults and the kids. I think this is like something that all of us who grew up in that space can kind of talk about. And in many cases, that leads to really inappropriate stuff. In my case, it didn't lead to anything inappropriate. It just meant that I had this sense that I was seen by adults as being kind of a fully formed human. And that was really positive for me. And I really struggled with that because I have friends who came out of those same spaces who have not had that experience, who've had a much different experience of what that felt like. There was a big sexual abuse scandal that broke at the school that I went to right before the pandemic that was like a 40 year, it was just crazy. It busted open everything. And that school was a space where there was a lot of blurred lines, similar to what home is like, where the adults and the kids are kind of meeting each other in central space. And I think what can happen is that can really allow for that seeing to cross over into a power play, right? But I wanted to take that out of the realm of like a sexual inappropriateness and still let it be inappropriate. But let us talk about why it's inappropriate for adults to expect children to give them something emotionally. (laughs) And I think for Saskia, you're right. He names her grief. Let's also talk about Abraham's development, right? She changes. And I think he also changes over the course of the book, right? He becomes much darker. He becomes much more paranoid. He is terrified by what happens at Ruby Ridge and then in Waco. And those become these kind of flashpoints for him around tightening a hold over his community in the name of trying to protect them. And I think part of why he wants to do that is because Saskia is there because she, he sees her and he knows she's special. And actually something that Joanna and I talked a lot about and this group of women who I've been talking to over the course of this pandemic was the idea of the special girl. And I'm sure you guys have thought about this. I was kind of considered a special girl, which is that I was very precocious. I was very verbal. I could memorize Shakespeare. I was sprightly. I was really funny and kind of saucy. And that those qualities in our culture in a little girl are seen as like primo. You're like, that kid is like 
you're given points. And Saskia is that. She is a special girl. Her specialness lies in some pretty dark things too, which you learn about as you read the book. But that being seen, the fact that Abraham notices that she's special, I think he's the first person who's ever said that about her out loud. Like her grandmother wants to squash that part of her because she sees it as dangerous. And her parents are too caught up in themselves and their drama to even recognize it. But Abraham says you're special. He sees that about her. And it's like this call to become her best self. It's like she pulls herself up into that spotlight. And it's like, here I am. I'm special. What can I do that's special? I really was thinking a lot about that. And then something that my friend Tova Mirvis said, who is a wonderful writer as well, also good friends with Joanna. She grew up in a very conservative Jewish community. And she was talking about the charismatic rabbi as this idea that she said there were always these, it was when I was drafting the book and there's that scene in the car when Saskia says that Abraham was sexy and everyone's kind of horrified by it because she was a child. And then of course they're like, did Abraham ever do anything to you? And then she says, no, 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 of course not. And then she kind of backtracks and says, well, he he wasn't sexy, whatever, it's fine. But something that Tova said that was really fascinating, she said the way that when I was growing up, the way that these charismatic rabbis would connect with young people in this community who might be questioning whether they should be there or not is to dine out on their sexiness, right? On their charisma. Like we all remember that camp counselor or that teacher who everybody has a crush on and you know they're not going to sleep with you or you maybe if he crosses the line, maybe that's something he's going to do. But there's something about that powerful feeling you have at that age about someone who is seeing you, who is noticing you. And I just really wanted to talk about that in a space that was not about abuse because I I think that that's pretty universal. Like, I think if you talk to most women, they can talk about an older boy or girl who saw them, named something about them that made them feel like they would have done anything for them. And that's power, right? That is. Yeah. Yes. Wow. I have so many thoughts about that. It just, <laughs> it, it's, it went in a different direction, but I really want to keep thinking about, I'm just going to add a little, I just watched In the Heights this weekend, the Lin-Manuel Miranda musical that's been made into a movie and how Nina was deemed special by her community, but what a weight that carried for her. And Kate and I also talk online um, about being seen and I have often related it to being an anchor. And now this makes sense to me because that same way, I mean, I think, I don't know if you've seen the the movie, but uh, Nina is deemed very special by her whole community and she has to carry the weight of being the first one to go to college. She's going to be something. And it's as as if the whole community needs her to do that. Now, I didn't feel that extreme, but I was the first one in my family to go to college. And I was deemed this one that would elevate more than just me. So it kind of all jives. It's really interesting. My brain is kind of on fire right now, but I'm going to move on to a question and keep us here. So on your website, you say, I write novels. So far, each one has been about searching for one's place in the world, which when I think about it is what I've been doing for most of my life. We love that line and is you know speaks to us. We wanted to hear more about that and how writing helps you with that. Well, this year has really summed that up. <laughs> I mean, and I, I think it's no mistake that I was really intense to be writing a book about a place called home that is the only home that these kids have ever felt safe and what they're willing to do to try to save that, even if it's a fool's errand, but they're kids, so they don't know that. Well, I felt like I didn't 
have a home or like I was in the process of losing my home and really grieving that. And then I realized that my husband is a lifelong New Yorker. For, so for him, that grief of making the decision to not be in Brooklyn, at least for now, was really clear. It was like, I don't know who I am if I don't live in New York. I've always lived in New York. My life is the subway and riding a city bike and eating bagels. And I know the things that I love about this place. I moved around a ton as a kid. I was born in California. Then when I was three, we moved to West Africa, where I lived in the middle of a very, very rural place. Then we moved to rural Vermont. And then when I was 10, we moved to Oregon. And then I came back east to go to college. I went to Vassar and then I moved to New York. So my life has been spent in very different places. And my experience of each of those places is the journey of kind of discovering how to make things work there. My dad's an anthropologist. So as a very young kid, I learned the phrase participant observer. And I think I would say most writers kind of are participant observers. That's like the state of being. I think it's probably why I became a writer because that state of being was so natural to me that I can remember when we moved to Vermont, which was a total displacement of everything I had known, the weather, where we lived, the landscape, the language, you know, and I was starting first grade at like a rural elementary school where most of the kids' parents, you know, worked in factories and I didn't even know what a factory was. Like my life was so different. And I remember standing back and watching kids on the playground and being like, okay, that's how I have to do it. That's how they're interacting. I have to be interested in strawberry shortcake because Sarah's interested in strawberry shortcake. So I'll ask these questions, even though I I didn't know what strawberry shortcake was. And I'll do these five things and then kind of like figured out how to how to fit in with that crowd. Like I was never the popular kid. <laughs> I never like ascended to the top of the pile in any of those situations, but I always kind of found myself into the middle. And I think that is an essential self to me. So as a result, even though, for example, this move has been so hard and I have these waves of just tremendous grief, shock at what has happened, I also feel like that has been a gift <laughs> to be able to kind of reassess my life and think like, okay, so I have to figure out how to talk to someone at the farmer's market here. There's a certain set of language, things you use. And that question then for the characters in this book, of course, is like central to them. It's like, do they have a home without this space? And then now that they've decided that they do as adults, how do they reintegrate that space into who they've become? Because they have this huge secret about what they did in that space. So they have been living in fear (laughs) for 20 years that someone's going to find out. And so as a result, some of them don't even want people to know. I mean, Ben is like, don't even talk about that place because he lives right near it. And he doesn't want anyone in that town to know that he was ever a kid who lived there. It strikes me as I have always felt that way. I'm always looking for my place. And I think my kids are going to have it too, whether that's nature or nurture or pandemic or whatever it is. I think it's a good thing because you're resilient and you're adaptable, right? I know resilience is a very big buzzword right now, but you know how to observe, you know how to figure out the rules, which ones you want to participate in, which ones you don't. And this is how the game of life is played. I don't know to suggest it's a game, but the flip side of it is that you never really feel like you ever fit in. Even when you find a place you do work, it, you know, like it works, it still never quite locks in for you, or at least that's been my experience. And that's something I thought a lot about as I was writing this book, thinking about these characters that like, it isn't until they come back together that they feel whole again. And that's really messed up because some of them are married and have kids, yeah. right? 
but it's not until they're back together, the five of them, that they're like, okay, we know who we are. And there's that moment when they're back in Marta's cabin and they say, we've been here all along waiting for ourselves to come back. I think right. that, that we've all had that experience where you get together with a group of friends who you haven't seen in 20 years and suddenly you're just like, oh, right, this is it. Yeah. And your partner or your kids are kind of like, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> like horrified by the betrayal of that, of like your past right. selves coming back <laughs> right. and yeah. taking over. Yeah. yeah. Even just a self that they don't, they don't, they know. don't know that that, right. It's not the self that they know of you. That's so interesting. I do want to just switch gears a little to the sort of the writing of this book. And you've mentioned the unique structure of it. And I was really interested in that. I mean, you switch, as you said, between the past and the present, between first and second person, there's short chapters, some of which are only a paragraph, which really propels the story forward. So I was just curious, I mean, in writing it, was this always the structure you you had in mind? Did it change throughout as you wrote the book? Because it is very unique. In that very, very early draft that Emily read, where she was like, this is Saskia's story, you have to start at the beginning. It was more shared narrative with every POV, but it wasn't first person. It was third person close. So it was like Cornelia close and then Issy close. And then, and they were actually in France. I know. That wow. Make sense. But, okay. but then once I hit upon this and I became clear I mean, I think one of the things that's really fun about this book for me is that there's the past and the present, and then there's this secret past, which you don't really know about until the very end of the book. So as a structural engine, I love talking about structure because I think about it a lot. As a structural engine, that was super helpful to me because I always knew, even if the reader doesn't know that there's the secret past, you think about it in a little section first at the very beginning, and then it's kind of put aside. And then you get into the story. And my hope is that the experience of the reader is that you're so propelled by the story that you almost put a pin in it, but it's back there and you're not really thinking about that. And then you keep returning to it a little bit, the sense that there's this secret past. But that engine was really important to writing the book. Without it, I don't think the story would have been as propulsive because I was aware that Saskia was running from something that she was not disclosing to anybody. And then what it meant is that the middle past or the what is the past of the book and the present have this kind of balancing act that they're doing that is kind of being exploded forward by this question of what that ancient past makes her think about herself, which is basically like, am I evil <laughs> or a conviction? I am evil. And I think that a lot of women can relate to that. I mean, I wanted to talk about the idea of shame being this huge propulsive action in any of our lives because I think women in this culture are really motivated by shame yeah sadly hiding it or trying to rectify it or yeah 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 and she definitely has I mean that is like a huge word for her she is ashamed of herself so the need to kind of try to hide from that to then want to kind of uncover it but not touch it is like the vein that runs through the whole book. And then in terms of the past and present, what was really fun for me was it became a way, and my book June, which was my last book, and my book The Effects of Light, which was my first novel, both go back and forth in time. So I thought about this in other books, but there's something kind of really fun you can do if you're writing a book in two different time periods set in the same place, because you can do a lot of work about that place and about the culture of that place by embedding, instead of having to write five things about it, you can write three things about it. 
because those two things get filled in because you're going back and forth in time and so that it does work for you. And I knew that this book had a cast of thousands, which is really overwhelming. These two big time frames, these big secrets. And I realized if I said it so that it went back and forth chapter by chapter, that rocket ship through line would allow for a little bit of space in those different time periods where they could be gifts to each other. And you certainly see that in some of the characters who have grown up. Like you kind of fill in the gaps about Ben's life because you know him as a kid and then you know him as as a man. And that was really fun. I mean, I love writing characters who you meet at one stage of life and then you see them again later on because isn't it fascinating how people change and grow? And I'm always fascinated by that when you run into someone at like your college reunion. And you're like, you you are always going to be this. I get it. (laughs) Yes. Exactly. You know? right. I saw that one coming. Yeah. Yeah. I really, or not, like you said. Yes. Sometimes you're so surprised. You? You're, yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Oh, All right. I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have thought of that. Yeah. You know? right. right. Yeah. I really right. love the use of the second person. I feel like it's having a moment right now. It's not in every book, obviously, but it's having a little bit of a moment. It just, it creates an intimacy between the reader and the narrator that can be overdone, but I love it. I'm loving it. There's just little touches. Yeah. Um, I mean, that was, that was an adventure too. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure it's not easy. You received some very interesting writing advice, which we wanted to talk about. You were told plain and simple, write a bestseller. Can you talk more about that advice when it came and how you put it into action, which you actually did? Yeah. So I had like what would have been considered like a very successful early career. I'm very honest about this because I think it's really important that people know that this is like the crazy stuff that happens in publishing. And this was also a different time. There was a lot more money in publishing. But in 2003, I sold my first novel in a two book deal for $400,000. And I was in my early 20s. In 2003, that's, yeah. Yeah, and I didn't want that. I mean, it was really (laughs) one of those things where I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. whoa." Long story short, what I learned from all that is I would always rather be underestimated than overestimated. Because especially what we do to young people in this country and in this particular career box. We also do it to like tennis players and people who kind of show precocity is we have this idea that we just eat them up, right? It's like throw a ton of money at them, see what they can do, and then see when the next one comes and just toss the old one out. And I very much had that experience in my career for various reasons. My first two novels did not sell very well. And I was suddenly unable to sell a third book, which was really devastating. And at that point, I became a mother. And so I was really much more in the realm of looking back at my career as feeling like I had been locked out of it. And I didn't have access back into it and full of grief and mourning about that. And I went out to lunch. I had another manuscript going around called The Plagiarist, which is about someone who plagiarizes another writer's work. And I love Jean Corlett's The Plot. The plot. Yes. The plot. For that same reason. Yes. You know, that was a book I wrote in 2009 and I tried to sell it and no one would buy it. I was told it was too inside baseball. People were mm. like, we love it, but it's just too much about writers. And I was like, I think it's about women being horrible to each other. And I think that's pretty <laughs> universal. Um, <laughs> <Right>. But, uh-huh. <laughs> and so I had lunch with my former editor, the editor who had acquired my first novel when I was like this little baby writer. And... 
I was like, why can't I sell a book? And I was full of kind of, and he was like, you just need to write a bestseller. That's the option. You know, if you want to come back from this, I mean, this is the thing that's so horrible that we don't tell young writers why it's so good to wait and write things, not just because you have a contract is that you really only get one or two chances. And then your sales record is just like this black mark on you. It's really terrible. And so I couldn't sell another book. So then I basically thought about, he was like, you need to write a bestseller. And so I thought about what does that mean? And I decided I want to write a book that I want to take on vacation. That's my goal is to write a book that someone like me who loves books and loves a really beautiful sentence, but also really likes sex and violence and, you know, a big mystery when I'm reading, I'm going to write a book for me. And so I ended up writing Bittersweet, which is my book that was on the New York Times bestseller list, which I actually think Fierce Little Thing shares a ton of DNA with, which has been part of what's been so fun about returning. You know, this book is also set on a lake. It's also about legacy and secrets and friendship and kind of these big questions that exist in that book. But I never thought it would actually work. (laughs) Um, But I think part of why it worked is that I was underestimated, right? I was coming into that deal with so little confidence in that book's ability to do anything for my career that I kind of had this screw it attitude, like, why not try this? And the narrative, I think, that really changed, and I say this because I think it's really important for people to know how many points of contact there are with a book in-house that make decisions about marketing and publicity and dollars and all that stuff, is that my editor on Bittersweet, who's also the editor on this book, even though it's with a different publishing house, she was very savvy and shared the book with her foreign sales rights people. And they were like, I can sell this book. And so that book ended up selling and making back my advance and foreign sales within six weeks of buying it. Wow. And that changed the narrative. Suddenly yeah. Yeah. that book in-house was like, well, we've already made back all the money we put out on this book. So like, this is great. Let's see what we can do. And Let's push this. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what happened. But it was really crazy because I, you know, I kind of went into it being like, write a bestseller. Okay, sure. But sometimes I think having, setting that kind of goal for yourself, I mean, it's partly like choosing to think like a man, Mm. you know, like my friend, Emily, who I was telling you about, she was at this fancy writer thing and there was a fancy male writer, white, of course, and someone asked what he was working on. And he said, oh, I'm writing this amazing book. It's going to be huge. (laughs) And it was, it ended up being huge. It ended up being like, you know, this amazing book, you know, she came back and she was like, I would never in a million years. (laughs) No. Even if you felt it, you even if you felt it secretly, which is hard enough even to start with feeling it, but even if you did. Yeah. Yeah. So one of my goals, but then you did it, (laughs) but then I did it. So one of the goals was to say like, I am going to do this. I'm going to write a bestseller. Whether it sells well or not is its own question, but I'm going to write what I think is the version of the book that I would want to have in my beach bag in a summer. Mm -hmm. That's kind of been my writing goal ever since because it's a lot more fun. I love the idea of of making people like you feel entertained. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. (laughs) No. I think there's a lot of conversation in the writing world. And I think this has changed a lot as genre has become more popular or more mainstream but there is this sense in the writing world that writing genre is less than and I'm not a genre writer but I definitely flirt with thriller 
Mm-hmm. And it's so fun. And readers are so passionate. I mean, it's fabulous to write yeah. for a group of people who you, you're writing, thinking of them loving it. That's really fun. Yeah. Yes. That's awesome. So what's really fun for us that we always have to ask all our authors, although now we kind of got your answer at the beginning of this, we always ask, what's your sign, your astrological sign? And do you relate to it? But you mentioned that you just got these new AirPods for your birthday, which is coming up. So I assume you are a cancer. I'm a cancer. Yes. I'm a cancer. Yes. Okay. Both Corinne and I have mothers who are cancers. Oh. We, mm-hmm. So yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. So we share that in common. So do you relate to being a Cancer or, or to astrology generally? I think I do. I don't know a ton about astrology, but I know enough about a Cancer to know that I think I share some very strong Cancer qualities. I definitely love my home. Yeah. yeah. I love being in a home. I'm moody. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can be really moody and I also can be emotional in really good ways. I can't deny how I feel. Yeah. I always feel my feelings fully for better or worse. Yeah. I think you're describing what you've done during the pandemic is very quintessential cancer because cancer is a cardinal sign, which means they can change. They like to start change, but home is also really important. So you're like, okay, we're going to move here, but trust me, I'm going to make it home. And so, so many of the themes and the whole time we were thinking, I'm so, I love when this happens that I knew you were cancer before we started. And the whole time I'm just thinking, I'm like, oh God, that's so very cancer. (laughs) And I can see how only she could do this. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I, I was thinking, that throughout this discussion. Well, and it's funny that you say that because my husband, this shift we made in our lives was he was less on board for much of the time. And I kept kind of saying exactly what you just said, where I just kept saying, yeah, I'll make it home. I'll make it home. Trust me. It's mm-hmm. the right thing. Trust me. This is what our kids can yeah. trust me. Even as our kids were yeah. like, we don't need this. We yeah. hate you for making this change. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It felt like really following my nose towards home, which was an interesting mm-hmm. question. And then that redefinition of what is a home? What is that? How does it work? But you can see like my bedroom, which I'm talking to you from, I hung art up. Yeah, quickly. it does not look like a temporary space in any way no yeah but part of that gift was also saying i think i think this amazing thing happened during the pandemic for me and i think for a lot of americans which is the idea of we're not promised tomorrow yeah and so instead of kind Mm -hmm. of putting off stuff like hanging my art i was like well i'm gonna look at that beautiful painting that i love even if it's Mm -hmm. for a week because yeah. who the fuck knows what's going to yeah. happen next, knows? you know? Like- <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, you just launched us perfectly into our last question, which is what are you loving right now? We love to hear about the books you might be reading, movies, TV shows, anything that you want to share with our listeners. Oh, I'm so excited to talk about that. Okay, I'm, re- I'm watching Hacks, which I know everybody is watching. and I Everybody so is, but I haven't, I have not started I it. I haven't. Yeah. Okay. I mean, neither. Yeah. Must watch. So we have to. It is mm-hmm. so fantastic. Okay. If you want to talk about complicated females, it is these two women who are vastly different ages, different backgrounds. It's about TV writing, comedy writing. It's just, ah, it's so great. And someone who I know through my sister, who's a filmmaker, Desiree Akhavan, who's a really amazing filmmaker, she directed a couple episodes. It's just great. Oh, it, really. Oh, watch okay. it. Gene Smart. Yeah amazing and if you I don't know if you watched Merritt Easttown but that is also great and she's the mom in Merritt Easttown and so she plays this other totally different strong character in her must be 80s yeah in Hacks and is so different from the mom she plays from the character she plays in Mare that you will love oh, she's, that she's shit. such a character she's in Mare incredible yeah, yeah. And yeah. she's such a character. Okay. She's a riot. 
Love I also, it. I never watched True Detective season one, so I just started that again. Oh, that oh, was boy. a good one. Ooh, I, know. Yeah. I know. It's heavy. I know. I've heard it's <laughs> yeah. really heavy, man. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And it's a little male for me. Like, I'm kind of like, okay, these it are these men. It's very male. And, and the ending will come together. It's very male. But really great. And especially at the time, there was like nothing like yeah, it but, when it first yeah. came out. And I think yeah. you'll be able to appreciate that, too. I'm reading Liberty by Caitlin Greenidge right now, which I'm really loving. I'm reading it slowly, which is wonderful. And I loved the plot. You know, I'm in a space right now where I have a book coming out and I have no childcare <laughs> and the summer just hit. So my reading yeah. and viewing time are few and far between. Yeah, um, I'm sure. But as a yeah. result, I'm being very picky about what I read and view, which has actually kind of been lovely yeah. to just yeah. be really careful about what I consume and not fill my brain up with stuff that is just kind of filler. Right. That's right. what this podcast does for me. We got to yeah. hone in on on the stuff we want to really yeah. cover because there's so much. But oh, I'm sure. Yeah. No, I mean yeah. it's amazing. It's, yeah. You guys, I didn't get to say this, but I love listening to this podcast. Joanna introduced me to it, and I've been listening to it since she first talked about it eight months ago. That's- I, it's That's a great, great. I mean, it's a great thank you and conversation and such an important thing to be talking about. So I love it. Thank you. thank you. Well, why don't you tell our listeners where they can find you, where you're most active on social media, you have a website, a newsletter, whatever, how you keep in touch. Yeah. So I have my website is MirandaBW.com. My last name is way too long. Um, so <laughs> com. there you can sign up for my newsletter. I send out a newsletter and it's a really fun space. I think it's a really nice conversation. It's not branded content. It's like <laughs> me hanging out with you. And I'm pretty much mostly active on Instagram, which my Instagram handle is MirandaBW1 because of that other Miranda BW somewhere out there. Yes. yes. Oh. Damn her. <laughs> Damn her. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, but I'm really excited to connect with people in those spaces. It's like, especially after this crazy year, it's nice to now connect in that space and then find each other in the real world. Won't that be nice? Oh, yes. gosh. And it's we're on the verge, right? We're really on the, we're verge. on the verge. I'm ready for the small children to be vaccinated. I have oh. a four-year-old, and I have to say that like we're yeah. still living a little bit pandemic-y over here because of that. So Yeah, us yeah. too. Knock yeah. on wood. Yeah, masks and yes. yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Guys. I didn't get to say so that fierce having... little thing is such a good title. I think it is yeah. such a good title. Thank you. So strong. I love like that a, title. It really yes. is, you know. So And when you anyway. find out why it's called that, I think that's like so, a nice little I loved writing. It's a that bonus. Yeah. yeah yes. Because it's a great title on its own and then in the context you're like, ah. Oh, yeah, nice. But so I also, you know, you. it's yeah, yeah, it's been it's been really fun to write that title and I think it sums up the book in this I love that I love the word fierce. I actually have it right yeah. now on my ring. Such oh, a nice I do too. I love that <laughs> word. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This has been Pop Fiction Women with Corinne and Kate. If you enjoyed this show, please tell the complicated women in your life. And the men who love them. Yes, tell them to listen. And then to follow on Spotify or review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And of course, share on social media. Tag us with your favorite books, TV shows, and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at Pop Fiction Women or on Twitter at Pop underscore Women. For more coverage of the women you love or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, go to popfictionwomen.com. And keep it complicated.